Chapter 5 of Mrs. Delawayne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shasta, Oakland, California. Mrs. Delaway by Virginia Woolf. Chapter 5 he woke with extreme suddenness saying to himself the death of the soul lord lord he said to himself out loud stretching and opening his eyes the death of the soul the words attached themselves to some scene to some room to some past he had been dreaming of it became clearer the scene the room the past he had been dreaming of. It was at Burton that summer, early in the nineties, when he was so passionately in love with Clarissa. There were a great many people there, laughing and talking, sitting round a table after tea, and the room was bathed in yellow light and full of cigarette smoke. They were talking about a man who had married his housemaid, one of the neighboring squires he had forgotten his name he had married his housemaid and she had been brought to burton to call an awful visit it had been she was absurdly overdressed like a cockatoo clarissa had said imitating her and she never stopped talking on and on she went on and on clarissa imitated her then somebody said sally seaton it was did it make any real difference to one's feeling to know that before they'd married she had had a baby in those days in mixed company it was a bold thing to say he could see clarissa now turning bright pink somehow contracting and saying oh i shall never be able to speak to her again whereupon the whole party sitting round the tea-table seemed to wobble it was very uncomfortable he hadn't blamed her for minding the fact since in those days a girl brought up as she was knew nothing but it was her manner that annoyed him timid hard something arrogant unimaginative prudish the death of the soul he had said that instinctively ticketing the moment as he used to do the death of her soul everyone wobbled everyone seemed to bow as she spoke and then to stand up different he could see sally seaton like a child who has been in mischief leaning forward rather flushed wanting to talk but afraid and clarissa did frighten people she was clarissa's greatest friend always about the place totally unlike her an attractive creature handsome dark with the reputation in those days of great daring and he used to give her cigars which she smoked in her bedroom 
she had either been engaged to somebody or quarrelled with her family and old perry disliked them both equally which was a great bond then clarissa still with an air of being offended with them all got up made some excuse and went off alone as she opened the door in came that great shaggy dog which ran after sheep she flung herself upon him went into raptures it was as if she said to peter it was all aimed at him he knew i know you thought me absurd about that woman just now but see how extraordinarily sympathetic i am see how i love my rob they had always been this queer power of communicating without words she knew directly he criticized her then she would do something quite obvious to defend herself like this fuss with the dog but it never took him in he always saw through clarissa not that he said anything of course just sat looking glum it was the way their quarrels often began she shut the door at once he became extremely depressed it all seemed useless going on being in love going on quarreling going on making it up and he wandered off alone among outhouses stables looking at the horses the place was quite a humble one and perry's were never very well off but there were always grooms and stable boys about clarissa loved riding and an old coachman what was his name an old nurse old moody old goody some such name they called her whom one was taken to visit in a little room with lots of photographs lots of bird cages it was an awful evening he grew more and more gloomy not about that only about everything and he couldn't see her couldn't explain to her couldn't have it out there were always people about she'd go on as if nothing had happened that was the devilish part of her this coldness this woodenness something very profound in her which he had felt again this morning talking to her an impenetrability yet heaven knows he loved her she had some queer power of fiddling on one's nerves turning one's nerves to fiddle-strings yes he had gone in to dinner rather late from some idiotic idea of making himself felt and had sat down by old miss perry aunt helena mr perry's sister who was supposed to preside there she sat in her white cashmere shawl with her head against the window a formidable old lady but kind to him for he had found her some rare flower and she was a great botanist marching off in thick boots with a black collecting box slung between her shoulders he sat down beside her 
and couldn't speak. Everything seemed to race past him. He just sat there, eating. And then, halfway through dinner, he made himself look across at Clarissa for the first time. She was talking to a young man on her right. He had a sudden revelation. She will marry that man, he said to himself. He didn't even know his name. For, of course, it was that afternoon, that very afternoon, that Dalloway had come over, and Clarissa called him Wickham. That was the beginning of it all. Somebody had brought him over, and Clarissa got his name wrong. She introduced him to everybody as Wickham. At last, he said, My name is Dalloway. That was his first view of Richard, a fair young man, rather awkward, sitting on a deck chair, blurting out, My name is Dalloway. Sally got hold of it. Always after that, she called him, My name is Delaware. He was a prey to revelations at that time. This one, that she would marry Delaware, was blinding, overwhelming at the moment. There was a sort of, how could he put it, a sort of ease in her manner to him, something maternal, something gentle. They were talking about politics all through dinner he tried to hear what they were saying afterwards he could remember standing by old miss perry's chair in the drawing-room clarissa came up with her perfect manners like a real hostess and wanted to introduce him to someone spoke as if they had never met before which enraged him Yet even then he admired her for it. He admired her courage, her social instinct. He admired her power of carrying things through. The perfect hostess, he said to her, whereupon she winced all over. But he meant her to feel it. He would have done anything to hurt her after seeing her with Dalloway. So she left him and he had a feeling that they were all gathered together in a conspiracy against him, laughing and talking behind his back. There he stood, by Miss Perry's chair, as though he had been cut out of wood. He talked about wildflowers. Never, never had he suffered so infernally. He must have forgotten even to pretend to listen, at last he woke up. He saw Miss Perry looking rather disturbed, rather indignant, with her prominent eyes fixed. He almost cried out that he couldn't attend because he was in hell. People began going out of the room. He heard them talking about fetching cloaks, about its being cold on the water, and so on. They were going boating on the lake by moonlight, one of Sally's mad ideas. He could hear her describing the moon, and they all went out. He was left quite alone. Don't you want to go with them? said Aunt Helena, old Miss Perry, she had guessed, 
and he turned round and there was clarissa again she had come back to fetch him he was overcome by her generosity her goodness come along she said they're waiting he had never felt so happy in the whole of his life without a word they made it up they walked down to the lake he had twenty minutes of perfect happiness her voice her laugh her dress something floating white crimson her spirit her adventurousness she made them all disembark and explore the island she startled a hen she laughed she sang and all the time he knew perfectly well galloway was falling in love with her she was falling in love with galloway but it didn't seem to matter nothing mattered they sat on the ground and talked he and clarissa they went in and out of each other's minds without any effort and then in a second it was over he said to himself as they were getting into the boat she will marry that man dully without any resentment but it was an obvious thing dalloway would marry clarissa dalloway rode them in he said nothing but somehow as they watched him start jumping on to his bicycle to ride twenty miles through the woods wobbling off down the drive waving his hand and disappearing he obviously did feel instinctively tremendously strongly all that the night the romance clarissa he deserved to have her for himself he was absurd his demands upon clarissa he could see it now were absurd he asked impossible things he made terrible scenes she would have accepted him still perhaps if he had been less absurd sally thought so she wrote him all that summer long letters how they had talked of him how she had praised him how clarissa burst into tears it was an extraordinary summer all letters scenes telegrams arriving at burton early in the morning hanging about till the servants were up appalling tete-a-tetes with old mr perry at breakfast aunt helena formidable but kind sally sweeping him off for talks in the vegetable garden clarissa in bed with headaches the final scene the terrible scene which he believed had mattered more than anything in the whole of his life it might be an exaggeration but still so it did seem now happened at three o'clock in the afternoon of a very hot day it was a trifle that led up to it sally at lunch saying something about dalloway and calling him my name is dalloway whereupon clarissa suddenly stiffened colored in a way she had and rapped out sharply 
we've had enough of that feeble joke that was all but for him it was precisely as if she had said i'm only amusing myself with you i've an understanding with richard galloway so he took it he had not slept for nights it's got to be finished one way or the other he said to himself he sent a note to her by sally asking her to meet him by the fountain at three something very important has happened he scribbled at the end of it the fountain was in the middle of a little shrubbery far from the house with shrubs and trees all round it there she came even before the time and they stood with the fountain between them the spout it was broken dribbling water incessantly how sights fix themselves upon the mind for example the vivid green moss she did not move tell me the truth tell me the truth he kept on saying he felt as if his forehead would burst she seemed contracted petrified she did not move tell me the truth he repeated when suddenly that old man brightcough popped his head in carrying the times stared at them gaped and went away they neither of them moved tell me the truth he repeated he felt that he was grinding against something physically hard she was unyielding she was like iron like flint rigid up the backbone and when she said it's no use it's no use this is the end after he had spoken for hours it seemed with the tears running down his cheeks it was as if she had hit him in the face she turned she left him went away clarissa he cried clarissa but she never came back it was over he went away that night he never saw her again it was awful he cried awful awful still the sun was hot still one got over things still life had a way of adding day to day still he thought yawning and beginning to take notice regent's park has changed very little since he was a boy except for the squirrels still presumably there were compensations when little elsie mitchell who had been picking up pebbles to add to the pebble collection which she and her brother were making on the nursery mantelpiece plumped her handful down on the nurse's knee and scudded off again full tilt into a lady's legs peter walsh laughed out but lucretia warren smith was saying to herself it's wicked why should i suffer she was asking as she walked down the broad path no i can't stand it any longer she was saying having left septimus who wasn't septimus any longer to say hard crawl 
wicked things to talk to himself to talk to a dead man on the seat over there when the child ran full tilt into her fell flat and burst out crying that was comforting rather she stood her upright dusting her frock kissed her but for herself she had done nothing wrong she had loved septimus she had been happy she had had a beautiful home and there her sisters lived still making hats why should she suffer the child ran straight back to its nurse and brezia saw her scolded comforted taken up by the nurse who put down her knitting and the kind-looking man gave her his watch to blow open to comfort her but why should she be exposed why not left in milan why tortured why slightly waved by tears the broad path the nurse the man in gray the perambulator rose and fell before her eyes to be rocked by this malignant torturer was her lot but why she was like a bird sheltering under the thin hollow of a leaf who blinks at the sun when the leaf moves starts at the crack of a dry twig she was exposed she was surrounded by the enormous trees vast clouds of an indifferent world exposed tortured and why should she suffer why she frowned she stamped her foot she must go back again to septimus since it was almost time for them to be going to sir william bradshaw she must go back and tell him go back to him sitting there on the green chair under the tree talking to himself or to the dead man evans whom she had only seen once for a moment in the shop he had seemed a nice quiet man a great friend of septimus's and he had been killed in the war but such things happen to everyone everyone has friends who were killed in the war everyone gives up something when they marry she had given up her home she had come to live here in this awful city but septimus let himself think about horrible things as she could too if she tried he had grown stranger and stranger he said people were talking behind the bedroom walls mrs filmer thought it odd she saw things too he had seen an old woman's head in the middle of a fern yet he could be happy when he chose they went to hampton court on top of a bus and they were perfectly happy all the little red and yellow flowers were out on the grass like floating lamps he said and talked and chattered and laughed making up stories suddenly he said now we will kill ourselves when they were standing by the river and he looked at it with a look 
which she had seen in his eyes when a train went by or an omnibus a look as if something fascinated him and she felt he was going from her and she caught him by the arm but going home he was perfectly quiet perfectly reasonable he would argue with her about killing themselves and explain how wicked people were how he could see them making up lies as they passed in the street he knew all their thoughts he said he knew everything he knew the meaning of the world he said then when they got back he could hardly talk he lay on the sofa and made her hold his hand to prevent him from falling down down he cried into the flames and saw faces laughing at him calling him horrible disgusting names from the walls and hands pointing round the screen yet they were quite alone but he began to talk aloud answering people arguing laughing crying getting very exciting and making her write things down perfect nonsense it was about death about miss isabel pole she could stand it no longer she would go back she was close to him now could see him staring at the sky muttering but clasping his hands yet dr holmes said there was nothing the matter with him what then had happened why had he gone then why when she sat by him did he start frown at her move away and point at her hand take her hand looking at it terrified was it that she had taken off her wedding ring my hand has grown so thin she said i have put it in my purse she told him he dropped her hand their marriage was over he thought with agony with relief the rope was cut he mounted he was free as it was decreed that he septimus the lord of men should be free alone since his wife had thrown away her reading ring since she had left him he septimus was alone called forth in advance of the mass of men to hear the truth to learn the meaning which now at last after all the toils of civilization greeks romans shakespeare darwin and now himself was to be given whole to to whom he asked aloud to the prime minister the voices which rustled about his head replied the supreme secret must be told to the cabinet first the trees are alive next there is no crime next love universal love he muttered gasping trembling painfully drawing out these profound truths which needed so deep were they so difficult 
in immense effort to speak out but the world was entirely changed by them forever no crime love he repeated fumbling for his card and pencil when a sky terrier snuffed his trousers and he started in an agony of fear it was turning into a man he could not watch it happen it was horrible terrible to see a dog become a man at once the dog trotted away heaven was divinely merciful infinitely benignant it spared him hardened his weakness but what was the scientific explanation for one must be scientific above all things why could he see through bodies see into the future when dogs will become men it was the heat wave presumably operating upon a brain made sensitive by eons of evolution scientifically speaking the flesh was melted off the world his body macerated until only the nerve fibers were left it was spread like a veil upon a rock he lay back in his chair exhausted but upheld he lay resting waiting before he again interpreted with effort with agony to mankind he lay very high on the back of the world the earth thrilled beneath him red flowers grew through his flesh their stiff leaves rustled by his head music began clanging against the rocks up here it is a motor horn down in the street he muttered but up here it cannoned from rock to rock divided met in shocks of sound which rose in smooth columns that music should be visible was a discovery and became an anthem an anthem twined round now by a shepherd boy's piping that's an old man playing a penny whistle by the public house he muttered which as the boy stood still came bubbling from his pipe and then as he climbed higher made its exquisite pliant while the traffic passed beneath this boy's elegy is played among the traffic thought septimus now he withdraws up into the snows and roses hang about him the thick red roses which grow on my bedroom wall he reminded himself the music stopped he has his penny he reasoned it out and has gone on to the next public house but he himself remained high on his rock like a drowned sailor on a rock i leant over the edge of the boat and fell down he thought i went under the sea i have been dead and yet am now alive but let me rest still he begged he was talking to himself again it was awful awful 
and as before waking the voices of birds and the sound of wheels chime and chatter into a queer harmony grow louder and louder and the sleeper feels himself drawing to the shores of life so he felt himself drawing towards life the sun growing hotter cries sounding louder something tremendous about to happen he had only to open his eyes but a weight was on them a fear he strained he pushed he looked he saw regent's park before him long streamers of sunlight fawned at his feet the trees waved brandished we welcome the world seemed to say we accept we create beauty the world seemed to say and as if to prove it scientifically wherever he looked at the houses at the railings at the antelopes stretching over the palings beauty sprang instantly to watch a leaf quivering in the rush of air was an exquisite joy up in the sky swallows swooping swerving flinging themselves in and out round and round yet always with perfect control as if elastics held them and the flies rising and falling and the sun spotting now this leaf now that in mockery dazzling it with soft gold in pure good temper and now and again some chime it might be a motor horn tinkling divinely on the grass stalks all of this calm and reasonable as it was made out of ordinary things as it was was the truth now beauty that was the truth now beauty was everywhere it is time said brezia the word time split its husk poured its riches over him and from his lips fell like shells like shavings from a plain without his making them hard white imperishable words and flew to attach themselves to their places in an ode to time an immortal ode to time he sang evans answered from behind the tree the dead were in thessaly evans sang among the orchids there they waited till the war was over and now dead now evans himself for god's sake don't come septimus cried out for he could not look upon the dead but the branches parted a man in gray was actually walking toward them it was evans but no mud was on him no wounds he was not changed i must tell the whole story septimus cried raising his hand as the dead man in the gray suit came nearer raising his hand like some colossal figure who has lamented the fate of man for ages 
in the desert alone with his hands pressed to his forehead furrows of despair on his cheeks and now sees light on the desert's edge which broadens and strikes the iron-clad figure and septimus half rose from his chair and with legions of men prostrate behind him he the giant mourner receives for one moment on his face the whole but i am so unhappy septimus said Rizia, trying to make him sit down the millions lamented for ages they had sorrowed he would turn around he would tell them in a few moments only a few moments more of his relief of this joy of this astonishing revelation the time septimus Rizia repeated what is the time he was talking he was starting this man must notice him he was looking at them i will tell you the time said septimus very slowly very drowsily smiling mysteriously as he sat smiling at the dead man in the gray suit the quarter struck the quarter to twelve and that is being young peter walsh thought as he passed them to be having an awful scene the poor girl looked absolutely desperate in the middle of the morning but what was it about he wondered what had the young man in the overcoat been saying to her to make her look like that what awful fix had they got themselves into both to look so desperate as that on a fine summer morning the amusing thing about coming back to england after five years was the way it made anyhow the first days things stand out as if one had never seen them before lovers squabbling under a tree the domestic family life in of the parks never had he seen london so enchanting the softness of the distances the richness the greenness the civilization after india he thought strolling across the grass this susceptibility to impressions had been his undoing no doubt still at his age he had like a boy or a girl even these alternations of mood good days bad days for no reason whatever happiness from a pretty face downright misery at the sight of a frump after india of course one fell in love with every woman one met there was a freshness about them even the poorest dressed better than five years ago surely and to his eye the fashions had never been so becoming the long black coats the slimness the elegance and then the delicious and apparently universal habit of paint every woman even the most respectable had roses 
looming under glass lips cut with a knife curls of india ink there was a design art everywhere a change of some sort had undoubtedly taken place what did the young people think about peter walsh asked himself those five years nineteen eighteen to nineteen twenty three had been he suspected somehow very important people looked different newspapers seemed different now for instance there was a man writing quite openly in one of the respectable weeklies about water closets that you couldn't have done that ten years ago written quite openly about water closets in a respectable weekly and then this taking out of a stick of rouge or a powder puff and making up in public on board ship coming home there were lots of young men and girls betty and bertie he remembered in particular carrying on quite openly the old mother sitting and watching them with her knitting cool as a cucumber the girl would stand still and powder her nose in front of everyone and they weren't engaged just having a good time no feelings hurt on either side as hard as nails she was betty what's her name but a thorough good sort she would make a very good wife at thirty she would marry when it suited her to marry marry some rich man and live in a large house near manchester who was it now who had done that peter walsh asked himself turning into the broad walk married a rich man and living in a large house near manchester somebody who had written him a long gushing letter quite lately about the blue hydrangeas it was seeing blue hydrangeas that made her think of him in the old days sally seaton of course it was sally seaton the last person in the world who would have expected to marry a rich man and live in a large house near manchester the wild the daring the romantic sally but of all that ancient lot clarissa's friends whitbreads kingerleys cunninghams clinklock jones sally was probably the best she tried to get hold of things by the right end anyhow she saw through hugh whitbread anyhow the admirable hugh when clarissa and the rest were at his feet the whitbreads he could hear her saying who are the whitbreads coal merchants respectable tradespeople hugh she detested for some reason he thought of nothing but his own appearance she said he ought to have been a duke 
he would be certain to marry one of the royal princesses and of course hugh had the most extraordinary the most natural the most sublime respect for the british aristocracy of any human being he had ever come across even clarissa had to own that oh but he was such a dear so unselfish gave up shooting to please his old mother remembering his aunt's birthday and so on sally to do her justice saw through all that one of the things he remembered best was an argument one sunday morning at burton about women's rights that antediluvian topic when sally suddenly lost her temper flared up and told hugh that he represented all that was most detestable in british middle-class life she told him that she considered him responsible for the state of those poor girls in piccadilly hugh the perfect gentleman poor hugh never did a man look more horrified she did it on purpose she said afterwards for they used to get together in the vegetable garden and compare notes he's read nothing thought nothing felt nothing he could hear her saying in that very emphatic voice which carried so much farther than she knew the stable boys had more life in them than hugh she said he was a perfect specimen of the public school type she said no country but england would have produced him she was really spiteful for some reason had some grudge against him something had happened he forgot what in the smoking-room he had insulted her kissed her incredible nobody believed a word against hugh of course who could kissing sally in the smoking-room if it had been some honorable edith or lady violet perhaps but not that ragmuffin sally without a penny to her name and a father or a mother gambling at monte carlo for all the people he had ever met hugh was the greatest snob the most obsequious no he didn't cringe exactly he was too much of a prig for that a first-rate ballet was the obvious comparison somebody who walked behind carrying suitcases could be trusted to send telegrams indispensable to hostesses and he'd found his job married honorable evelyn got some little post at court looked after the king's cellars polished the imperial shoe buckles went about in knee breeches and lace ruffles how remorseless life is a little job at court he had married this lady the honorable evelyn and they lived hereabouts so he thought looking at the pompous houses overlooking the park 
for he had lunched there once in a house which had like all hugh's possessions something that no other house could possibly have linen comforts it might have been you had to go and look at them you had to spend a great deal of time always admiring whatever it was linen cupboards pillowcases old oak furniture pictures which hugh had picked up for an old song but mrs hugh sometimes gave the show away she was one of those obscure mouse-like little women who admire big men she was almost negligible then suddenly she would say something quite unexpected something sharp she had the relics of the grand manner perhaps the steam coal was a little too strong for her it made the atmospheres thick and so there they lived with their linen cupboards and their old masters and their pillowcases fringed with real lace at the rate of five or ten thousand a year presumably while he who was two years older than hugh paged for a job at fifty-three he had come and asked them to put him into some secretary's office to find him some usher's job teaching little boys latin at the beck and call of some mandarin in an office something that brought in five hundred a year for if he married daisy even with his pension they could never do on less whitbread could do it presumably or dalloway he didn't mind what he asked dalloway he was a thorough good sport a bit limited a bit thick in the head yes but a thorough good sort whatever he took up he did in the same matter-of-fact sensible way without a touch of imagination without a spark of brilliancy but with the inexplicable niceness of his type he ought to have been a country gentleman he was wasted on politics he was at his best out of doors with horses and dogs how good he was for instance when that great shaggy dog of clarissa's got caught in a trap and had its paw half torn off and clarissa turned faint and dalloway did the whole thing bandaged made splints told clarissa not to be a fool that was what she liked him for perhaps that was what she needed now my dear don't be a fool hold this fetch that all the time talking to the dog as if it were a human being but how could she swallow all that stuff about poetry how could she let him hold forth about shakespeare seriously and solemnly richard dalloway got on his hind legs and said that no decent man ought to read shakespeare's sonnets because it was like listening at keyholes besides the relationship was not one that he approved no decent man 
ought to let his wife visit a deceased wife's sister incredible the only thing to do was to pelt him with sugared almonds it was at dinner but clarissa sucked it all in thought it so honest of him so independent of him heaven knows if she didn't think of him the most original mind she had ever met that was one of the bonds between sally and himself it was a garden where they used to walk a walled-in place with rose bushes and giant cauliflowers he could remember sally tearing off a rose stopping to exclaim at the beauty of the cabbage leaves in the moonlight it was extraordinary how vividly it all came back to him things he hadn't thought of for years while she implored him half laughing of course to carry off clarissa to save her from the hughes and the delaways and all the other perfect gentlemen who would stifle her soul she wrote reams of poetry in those days make a mere hostess of her encourage her worldliness but one must do clarissa justice she wasn't going to marry hugh anyhow she had a perfectly clear notion of what she wanted her emotions were all on the surface beneath she was very shrewd a far better judge of character than sally for instance and with it all purely feminine with that extraordinary gift that woman's gift of making a world of her own wherever she happened to be she came into a room she stood as he had often seen her in a doorway with lots of people round her but it was clarissa one remembered not that she was striking not beautiful at all there was nothing picturesque about her she never said anything specially clever there she was however there she was end of chapter five